Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. Thank you so much, Pastor Neil, for the invitation to be here. My wife and I absolutely love this church. Uh, we moved here uh, just a little over 10 years ago uh, to be a part of uh, Minneapolis community, to be a part of Cedar Valley. Uh, we moved here from Los Angeles. I was there for a little over 12, 13 years working as a pastor, uh, teaching at another college out there. My wife was out there working with inner city children, uh, building after school programs in churches and helping the community. Now, my wife and I, because you met us as a married couple, but what many people in this church who met us back then don't realize is we were a newly married couple. My wife and I were actually friends for 12 years before we got married. And, and the reason, in part, was this. I was the singles pastor at my church. <laughs> Which means, if you were single, I was your pastor. And I was not going to date you. I had boundaries. My wife left the church because God called her to the mission field. She went to Romania, where she worked with abandoned babies. We started dating while she was gone, because now she was no longer part of the church. I started emailing her. We started a relationship. A few years into this, my wife says to me, they've asked me to make a longer commitment here. You need to tell me, do I have a reason to move back? <laughs> it's the most important email I've ever answered in my life. I said to her, yes, come on back. She moved back. We got married. A year later, we moved to here. This was the first big adventure in our marriage. While we were here, I continue to work at North Central University. God has graced us with the opportunity uh, to take care of more children uh, through my wife, who coordinates what we call, what ministry here called Together for Good, uh, that does respite care uh, for children. Uh, from time to time, you're going to see us with other children. Uh, in fact, I don't know how many times people in this church have congratulated my wife and I on, on the new child. And I'm like, well, next week you're going to see another one. But thank you so much for that where we'll have children from time to time. Now, we do have one son that is ours. Uh, his name is Steele. Our son is very much a Minnesota boy. He was born in Minneapolis. He was dedicated to God on this stage by Pastor Jerry Strandquist. And this last Easter, I had the honor to baptize him here on this stage. He is a Minnesota boy. He is a Cedar Valley kid. This is the only church that my son has ever known. And I'll tell you that we are so grateful for this community. So grateful for this community. Now, I became a husband late in life. I became a parent late in life. And there were things I had to learn when I became a dad. Uh, unlike now, where I know everything. But there were things I had to learn when I became a dad. There were surprises. One surprise for me was how difficult it is to plan a child's birthday party. Now, you know, when I was a kid, it didn't seem like it was that much of a struggle. I remember my son's first year birthday party was coming up, his, his one-year birthday. My wife says to me, what are we going to do? And I say, what do you mean, what are we going to do? He's one. He's not going to remember. We don't have to do anything. I'll find some stock photos of great birthday parties. We'll put it in the book. We'll tell them years later, this was your first birthday. No, she wasn't having that. 
She wanted to do something big. Second year, what are we going to do? Again, he's two. He's not going to remember. No, we did something. Third year, we did something. Every single year. When I was a kid, we didn't do much. My parents bought a sheet cake. They invited all of my friends over. In fact, I think we have a picture of one of my birthday parties. They invited all of my friends over. Let's see that photo. I think they're going to bring it up here in just a second. When you'll see it, you'll know it. Yeah, and of course, that's a joke. I, I didn't know that many dogs. That's a joke. But, but, you know, we just didn't have much going on here in my birthday. Now, today we're honoring the birthday of the church. Today on Pentecost Sunday is when we celebrate the birth of the church. Not Cedar Valley, but the church worldwide. I want you to look at your neighbor and just say, happy birthday. The church around the year 30 experiences this day, the day of Pentecost, what we sometimes mark as their birth. So about 1,990 years ago, now I want you to look at your neighbor and say to them, you don't look a day over 1,900. <laughs> about 1,990 years ago, we had this celebration. Now, why? Why do we consider Pentecost the birth of the church? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. I want to preach to you a sermon entitled, The Gift at Pentecost. The gift at Pentecost. And to begin, I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, and I'm going to ask everyone to stand. Now, this is something that we do at this church. Uh, uh, this is not something that we do for uh, particularly, you know, the Bible commands us to do this. It doesn't. It's just out of reverence for God's Word. We want to separate when we're speaking from when God is speaking. And so we want to stand for this reason. We're not going to do this throughout the service, but I'm going to begin reading here, Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse number 1. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were setting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running. And they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, yet we hear them speaking in our native languages. Here we are. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, uh, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the area of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood amazed there and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. You may be seated. Now, Israel, three times a year, had a religious festival that would require everyone to come to Jerusalem. Now, this festival, these festivals were tied up with harvest. Understand, for most of human history, you could divide human history based on our relationship with food right? So we start off as foragers. We sometimes call it hunter-gatherers, but we would simply go out and we would find food. Then at some point in our history, we start into farming, and we become a bunch of farming communities all over the world. Today, we're at the stage that I like to call fast food, but we go from forager to farming to fast food. When you're a farming community, everything revolves around the seasons. 
Almost every ancient culture has a festival related to harvest. You would have a celebration when harvest was to begin. You would have a celebration when harvest was to end. You would have a celebration when now you could finally rest and take a nap. Israel had festivals related to harvest. In fact, some of the early names of these, you read this in Exodus chapter 23. It was a festival of ingathering, a festival of harvest, a festival of unleavened bread. It's all associated with food. But what was unique about Israel was their festivals also had religious significance tied to their history. Not just tied to the seasons, but tied to their history. So this festival of unleavened bread that would sometimes happen here between March and April, this was also the Feast of Passover. This is when we'd all come to Jerusalem and we'd remember when God set us free from slavery in Egypt. Another festival, the Festival of Ingathering, also called the Festival of Booths or Tents. This is the festival where we remember it would take place in September, October. We'd remember our journey in the wilderness when we had to live in tents every single night. We would come to Jerusalem for this. And then you have the Festival of Weeks, which also became known as the Feast of Passover or Pentecost. This was the festival in which Israel, it would take place around this time of the year, May, June. It was known as 50th because it was 50 days after Passover, seven weeks and a day. This is when we would come together, and what we would celebrate is we would celebrate the giving of God's law. We would celebrate God's covenant with humanity, God's law with Moses. Now, that might surprise you, because sometimes as Christians, we have a negative impression of the law of God based on how we read the New Testament. But I want you to understand right now, the giving of God's law was considered grace. And here's the way I want to illustrate this. As a pastor, as I told you before, I was a singles pastor for years. What that meant was I did a lot of weddings. Had a lot of people in my church get married out of my church. I would do their wedding. We would have times of counseling. I would try to instruct them on how to have a successful marriage. Yeah, I would do this as a single person. But, you know, Jesus was single. Paul was single. They give us all our marriage advice in the Bible. So I would do this. I would try to instruct them on this, right? But it was always generic. It was always general. But how many of you know that marriages aren't generic or general? The person you're married to is a unique individual, and they have their own wants, they have their own desires, they have their own issues. And I've always thought what an incredible wedding gift it would be that on the day of your wedding, I could hand you a book, a rule book, and I would say to you, Pastor Amos, this is going to teach you everything you need to know about your wife. This is going to teach you what she likes, what she doesn't like. This is going to teach you, Pastor Kim, about Neil. You're going to learn what chores he wants to do. He doesn't even know it's a chore. Don't tell him. This is going to teach you what chores he's never going to do. You're going to have to learn or pay someone else to do it. This is going to teach you what buttons you don't push. This is going to teach you what makes them happiest. How many of you say that would be an incredible gift? When God gives his law to Israel... That's what he's giving them. He's giving them a set of instructions on how to be in relationship with him and how to be in relationship with each other. And when Israel gathered together at Pentecost, they would celebrate those instructions. So, what went wrong? What went wrong with Israel was not the giving of God's law. What was wrong with Israel was they didn't have the heart to follow it. 
How many know there are some couples that if I could give you an instruction manual on everything you need to know about your spouse, you would still have a problem? The problem wouldn't be in the manual. The problem would be in you. I had a grandfather who, after he got married, according to my grandmother, continued to date. That's not good. He had some issues with his temper, some severe issues. He had a tendency to explode out of nowhere and then hit whoever was in front of him, even if they were his five-year-old. My dad and his brothers, every single one of them, except for one, when they turned of age, immediately left home and went in the military. My dad at 18 went in the Air Force. His middle brother at 17 went in the Army. The youngest brother who was left at home and was now the sole object of my grandfather's anger was able to convince his mom to sign a waiver so he could join the Navy at 16, at which point he immediately went to Vietnam. And you ask my dad and his brothers, what was it like going in the military? And they would tell you, boot camp was easier than living at home. They all joined up because it was a better life. Why? Because at boot camp, there were rules. And if you followed the rules, you could make it. At home, you could follow the rules and still get hit in the face. Sometimes, we don't like the idea of rules. But rules are an act of grace when you've lived in an environment where there are none. Israel received the law of God, and it was an act of grace. They celebrated that. But Israel still had a problem, and the problem was their heart. In fact, the whole crisis of the Old Testament is that Israel has been called to be God's people. Israel has been given a promise of land. They've been given a promise of a special relationship. But Israel can't maintain the covenant, and now they go into exile. And God, at the end of the Old Testament, makes promises to Israel that I'm going to return you home. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to bring you back from where you are. I'm going to give you the land I promised you. But the obvious question from Israel is this. What does it matter if we're still the same people? You can have a guy cheat on his wife. They get a divorce. She decides to remarry him. But what's it going to matter if he's still an adulterer? Who's to say they're just not going to get a divorce again? So God gives Israel this promise at the end of the Old Testament. I'm not just going to bring you back. I'm not just going to make things the way they were before. I'm going to give you my spirit so that things will be different. One of the reasons Israel had a problem was they kept, had, the, had the wrong leadership. They had this king who sinned, that king who sinned. He would lead the entire nation into sin. God says, I'm going to give you a new king, a king I'm going to put my spirit in, a king who's going to lead you the right way, a king who's going to deliver you from your enemies, and this king, this Messiah, will be anointed by the Spirit of God. Not only that, but I'm going to give you my spirit to all the people. I'm going to change you from the inside out so that you're going to want to do what I want you to do willingly. You're going to have my law on the outside, but you're going to have my heart on the inside. That's what's going to make the difference. That's how the Old Testament ends, with the promise that God will give his spirit to a Messiah and God will give his spirit to the people. That's how the New Testament begins with the promise that God is doing that very thing through Jesus. And every single gospel, 
John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the one who has the Spirit of God. The people come to John and they say to him, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that we're to expect? And John says, no, no, no. I'm only immersing you in water, but the one who comes after me, the one who's much worthier than I am, he's going to immerse you in the very presence of God. He's not just going to have the Spirit. He's going to be able to give the Spirit. Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit. Jesus ministers through the power of the Holy Spirit. And before Jesus leaves, he tells his disciples, I'm sending you to a world that is as hostile to you as it was to me. But don't worry, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. That's where the disciples are on the day of Pentecost. They have been waiting since Jesus has left. They have been in prayer. Jesus told them, don't leave the city until you receive the promise that's been given, that's been offered. They're waiting for the Spirit. Now, on this day, the crowd returns. I want you to understand what it was like to be in Jerusalem at Pentecost. How many of you, it's a festival. It's a festival centered around food. And when I think of festival centered around food, the first thing that comes to mind is the Minnesota State Fair. Have you ever been to the Minnesota State Fair? It's either you ride it or you fry it, right? I mean, that is the Minnesota State Fair. Ride or fried, that's how it is. How many you know it's crowded? It's crowded, everyone's there. Yet it wasn't just a food festival. It was also a patriotic festival, celebrating God making us a people. How many know what it's like on July 4th weekend? You see the flags, you get the fireworks. But it wasn't just a patriotic festival. It was also a religious festival. How many know what it's like on Easter Sunday? So here's what I want you to think of when you think of Pentecost. Think of being at the Minnesota State Fair on July 4th weekend, but it's also Easter Sunday. <laughs> Not only that, this is the first time the people have been back since Jesus was crucified. Remember, we know the rest of the story. Jesus rose from the dead. He taught his disciples for 40 days. He ascended into heaven. They've been in prayer these last 10 days. But the people who were in Jerusalem just for Passover don't know that. They were there for Passover. Jesus was crucified. Then they returned home. And now this is the first time they've come back. So, think of it like this. It's Minnesota State Fair, July 4th weekend, Easter Sunday, but it's also the Thanksgiving after 9-11. It's the first time we've gathered together since a traumatic event. That's Pentecost. The disciples are in prayer for 10 days. On this day, things begin to happen. There is first a sound that enters the room like a mighty wind. There is a symbol of tongues over their head that's spreading like flames of fire. And they begin to speak in languages they don't know. Now, the wind and the fire, if you read the Old Testament, are what you expect. When God makes an appearance, there's sometimes this thing we call theophany. It's these kind of physical manifestations of the presence of God. And two of the most powerful forces in nature are storms and fire. So this is sometimes what happens when God enters the room. You have these kind of theophanies, these storms, these fire. When God comes down to meet with Moses on Mount Sinai to give him the law, he comes down in a whirlwind of fire. 
and there is a loud sound like a mighty wind. It happens on the day of Pentecost. But what's unique is the speaking in other languages. That's the thing that only ever makes its first appearance in Acts chapter 2. People prophesy in the rest of the Bible. People experience other spiritual things in the rest of the Bible. Only in Acts chapter 2 do they suddenly begin to speak in languages that they don't know. And you ask yourself the question, why? And I would argue this. It is a sign of what the baptism in the Spirit is for. And what the baptism in the Spirit is for is signified by the ability to communicate beyond the boundaries of our limitations by the power of the Spirit. It is an ability to communicate beyond the boundaries of our limitations by the power of the Spirit. The church is filled with the Spirit at Pentecost, and the sign is the ability to communicate beyond their own boundaries, which then dissolves the boundaries between them. So, what do we see here in this story of the gift at Pentecost? I'm going to mention five things briefly, and then we're going to close in prayer. The first is this. The gift of the Spirit fills our worship. The gift of the Spirit fills our worship. When the church is in prayer and they are filled with the Spirit, at once as they begin to speak in tongues, they're actually praising God. When they receive the Spirit, prayer turns into praise. And I say the Spirit fills our worship. I could just say it this way, the Spirit fills our worshipers. When Luke is trying to describe what's happening here, he has a tendency to use one of three phases, phrases. Number one, he says it's like a filling with the Spirit. In other places, he says it's being baptized with the Spirit. The word baptism here is simply what we mean by immersion. You dunk someone. Another phrase he uses in the book of Acts is it's like the Spirit being poured out. Have you ever seen the end of a game when a coach wins? What do they sometimes do? They take the Gatorade and they pour it out. So what do all of these phrases have in common? The Spirit fills. We are baptized with the Spirit. The Spirit is poured out. What all of these have in common is this idea. The Spirit is given lavishly. The Spirit is given lavishly. I want you to understand the word for Spirit in the Bible is simply the word for air and motion. It's also the word we use to translate wind. It's also the word we use to translate breath. It's the word we use sometimes to translate a mighty storm, a mighty wind. It's simply air in motion. Air in motion outside of the body we call wind. Air in motion coming from the body we call breath. It's all the same thing. How many know that many times we forget that we're surrounded by air? I want you to look at your neighbor and I want you to go like this. How many of you felt that? What you felt was the air that was already surrounding you. Now, I want you to hold your hand up to your mouth, and I want you to just say anything. Yeah, how many of you felt that? You felt the air coming from you. Our relationship to air is the same kind of relationship fish have to water. We live in it. We can splash each other with it. We can breathe it. We can cough it. We have that relationship with air. Those are the kinds of images that Luke gives us for the Spirit. We can be filled with the Spirit. 
We can be immersed in the Spirit. The Spirit can be poured out on us. When the Spirit comes, it's with the sound of a mighty wind. We are filled with the Spirit. And the first thing that happens when the church is filled is the church begins to worship. The church begins to worship. The gift of the Spirit fills our worship. That's why so many people are being filled with the Spirit when they're already in the act of worship. Because we praise God in the act of being filled because we can't help to do anything else. The Holy Spirit turns our hearts towards God. And the Spirit is constantly using worship to reorient us to the truth of who God is. The Spirit guides us in worship as he uses worship to reorient us to everything around us, around the truth of God and who he is. I once had an uncle who was a civil engineer, owned his own civil engineering company, worked at the University of Kentucky where he was the chief research engineer. And he said that one day he was going through a particularly busy period in his life. He said it was extremely busy. I didn't have a lot of time. I had a lot of demands at work. I had a lot of demands at my other job. I had demands in the family. I was trying to do things at church. And he said, and I had a dream. And in the dream, I was seated in a chair, and there was a long line of people in front of me, and every single person represented one of these things. Someone represented my job. Someone represented my, my, my family. So I think my wife was number three in the line. Someone represented something else. He said, and right in the middle of the line was Jesus. And he said that in the dream, Jesus steps out of the line, and he comes up to where I'm seated to try and have a conversation with me. And I say to him, Jesus, not yet. Don't cut. Get back in line. I said, Jesus doesn't say anything. He turns around, gets back in line. I'm meeting with someone else. Eventually, he steps out of line. He comes back up, tries to talk with me. And I say to him, Jesus, again, I've told you, stop doing that. Get back in line. He said, this happens three times in my dream where I send Jesus away because I'm not ready to deal with you yet. And he said that when I woke up, I woke up crying because I realized that's exactly what was happening in my spiritual life. I kept sending Jesus away. Here's what worship does. Worship reminds us that Jesus doesn't stand in line. Jesus is the thing around which everything else is centered. When the Spirit comes, the Spirit sets us free from having all the wrong priorities. The Spirit sets us free from all of these demands that we think in the moment are more important. And the Spirit fills our worship because he reminds us of the truth of who God is and our relationship to God. The Spirit not only fills our worship, the Spirit also produces our wonders. The Spirit produces our wonders. The crowd that recognizes the tongues of the church were amazed that the people were speaking their own languages. Now understand, all the people who were praying in the upper room were from Galilee. When Jesus gathered his disciples, he gathered them from Galilee. Galilee is a region in Israel that was considered the backwards region. They were, in a sense, the hillbillies of Israel. Sometimes I think we do a disservice in our, in our, in our movies of Jesus because we never give the disciples a southern accent. And that's where I'm from. I'm a Kentuckian. I grew up with a very thick accent. That's the kind of accent they had. If you don't believe me, read the story of Peter. Someone actually says to him in the story when Jesus is being crucified, I know you're a Galilean because you talk like one. They can tell the accent. So now you have all these disciples with a Galilean accent 
who are speaking in other languages that the people recognize as their own, and they are amazed. They are asking the question, where did they learn this? I actually heard a story of this once in my church back in California. Uh, there was a woman in my church who, when she was a young woman, a teenager, she was Italian. Her family had immigrated from Italy. Uh, they were a Catholic family. She met another Italian boy and began to date him, which pleased her family to no end, that their daughter was dating an Italian boy. But the Italian boy wasn't Catholic like they thought. He was actually Pentecostal. And he took her to his church where she had an experience with the Spirit of God, and she began speaking in tongues, and it freaked her parents out. So they immediately brought her to their priest for an exorcism. Our daughter's doing this thing. She went, got a part of this cult. Something's happened. You need to help her. The priest, who was a good priest, very wisely decided to talk to her alone without her parents in the room. And he said to her, I just want you to tell me what happened. And she began telling her experience with God. And he said, I've never heard tongues before. Could you speak in tongues right now? And she said, well, I don't know if I can do this on command. He said, when does it happen? Well, usually when I'm praising God, I start speaking in tongues. He said, well, just start praising God. He comes out of the room. The family says to him, so what, what, what did you do? Did you cure her? And he says to them, first off, she's not demon-possessed. I promise you that. Secondly, I never heard her pray in tongues, but I've got to ask you this question. Who taught her Latin? He said, as she began to pray, she began to pray in the most beautiful Latin I've ever heard, and I've never heard a 14-year-old speak Latin that well. I'm amazed. Who taught her that? And they're like, our daughter doesn't speak Latin. He goes, no, 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 she does. She prayed in it beautifully. And that was this priest's introduction to tongues. And later on, he would become the leader of the charismatic Catholic movement in Los Angeles. That woman would go on to marry that young man, and he would become the head of the board of our church. That was a wonder. That was a wonder. The Holy Spirit produces wonders. The Bible sometimes calls them signs and wonders which simply refers to miraculous moments that break up people's expectation of what is possible and opens their hearts to what is real. When people experience a sign and wonder, it shows them the world is different than what they thought it was. I didn't think God could heal someone like that. I didn't think God could do something like that. I didn't expect that kind of thing to happen. And when I experience it, when I am amazed by it, I'm willing to hear what you have to tell me that I clearly don't know. That's the function of a sign and wonder. It causes an amazement, but is a sign pointing back to Jesus. When the church is filled with the Spirit, they become a community that is gifted with signs and wonders. They are able to pray for the sick and they're healed. They're able to speak in tongues and people understand. They're able to give words of knowledge of things they couldn't possibly know. People are amazed by this. The Spirit produces wonders. But it's not for a show. It's always for a way that people could understand that there is a Jesus who cares for them now. The Spirit fills our worship. The Spirit produces our wonders. The Spirit also provides our words. The church on this day was able to speak in a language they had not learned, and the ability here, and I want to be clear on this, because sometimes in Pentecostalism, we've gotten weird about tongues. 
You might already think tongues is weird, so it's even more weird when you get weird about it. And where we sometimes get weird about it is we start thinking that people who speak in tongues have reached some kind of stage of spiritual maturity. And here's what I want to stress. Tongues is not a sign of maturity. Tongues is a sign of dependence. I don't speak in tongues because I'm more mature than another Christian. I speak in tongues because I'm that dependent on God. That I realize there comes a point that even my own words are not enough. When our son was very young, and we would fill out cards to his grandmother or to his uh, grandfather or to others, we would always want him to sign the card, but he didn't know how. So what we would do was we would put the pen in his hand, and we would put our hand over his hand, and we would guide his writing so that he was the one signing, but we were the one providing the meaning. The Bible tells us that there are some times in Romans chapter 8 that we're so weak we don't even know how to pray. How many of you ever felt so weak you didn't even know how to pray? And the Holy Spirit puts his hand over our hand. And he guides us with the meaning that sometimes only God knows. The Holy Spirit gives us our words. But doesn't just give us, in fact, I'll say this, privately, The Holy Spirit can give us words we'll never learn. We just know that it's something that's going to God. Publicly, when the Holy Spirit gives us words that we're meant to speak to others in tongues, like a message in tongues, that's never meant for us. It's never meant for a show. It's always for the good of someone else. And I'll give you an example of this. There was a woman in my church growing up who had come to our church in a very unusual way. My my church, I'm from Kentucky. My hometown is Fort Knox, Kentucky. So our church was a military church, 75% military families, which meant every three years we had a different congregation because people would come in, then they'd be shipped out. There was a woman who started attending our church. She was from Japan. She had met her husband who was serving as a soldier overseas. They got married. They moved to Kentucky to rural Kentucky where there's really not a large Japanese community. And after being there for a few weeks, she began to get depressed Because she said, there's no one here I can talk to in my own language. There's no one here I can communicate with. She was already a Christian. And she said, one morning I woke up and I said, God, I don't think you love me anymore. And the reason I don't think you love me is I'm so lonely. She says, in fact, if you still see me, if you still love me, I want you to have someone tell me you do in my own language this morning. She said, that morning I went to find a church. I didn't know what church to go to, so I simply started following a line of cars that were going into a parking lot. She came to our church. She said, I walked in, I sat down, and at the end of the service, she got so excited, and she ran up to our pastor, and she said, I need to speak to the people who speak Japanese. And the pastor said, ma'am, I'm sorry, I think you're the only one here from Japan. She goes, no, no, no. She said, in the middle of your service, someone stood up, and they said in perfect Japanese, I am still your God. I see you and I love you. She said, not only that, someone else stood up and they translated into English what she had just said in Japanese. I know for certain there's two people here that speak Japanese. And the pastor said, oh, wait a minute. He said, I know what you're talking about now. He said, no. He said, 
This is what spirit baptism is. And to begin to explain to her speaking in tongues, she attended our church for the next three years, and she never missed a service because she was always afraid she would miss another message in Japanese. The Holy Spirit gives us words. He guides our words. But here's the thing we sometimes miss about spirit baptism. He doesn't just give us words in another language. The Holy Spirit gives us words in our own language. On that day, the church was empowered to speak in the language they already knew. The crowd that was amazed by the tongues asked the question, what does this mean? And Peter was able to stand up and say to them, this means this. Now understand, Peter, Peter was a man who 50 days earlier could not look a servant girl in the eyes when she asked him if he knew Jesus. 50 days later, he stands up and he says to the large crowd, this is all about Jesus. What happened? The Spirit had given him the words in his own language. This is what Jesus promises. When you receive the Spirit, you will be able to speak exactly what you need to say. When we're filled with the Spirit, Jesus isn't just allowing us to pray in a language we don't know but he's giving us the courage to speak in the language we do know. You aren't baptized in the Spirit just so you can speak in tongues. You're baptized in the Spirit so you can speak in English, so you can speak in Spanish, so you can speak in whatever your native language is. Now, I, I'm, my, my training is in history, in church history, and I love to study the history of Pentecostalism. That's something that, that I've done for years. And something that's always amazed me in studying early Pentecostals is that when early Pentecostals, this is the group that our church comes out of, the tradition that is so heavily emphasized spirit baptism and speaking in tongues, when they were baptized in the spirit, they had a tendency to do one of two things. Either they would try to identify the language they were speaking, and then they would go to that country, because if I'm speaking Hindi, I need to go to India. If I'm speaking Mandarin, I need to go to China. You don't realize how many Pentecostals would sell everything, get on a boat, and go overseas. But here's the other thing that was so impressive to me. A lot of Pentecostals who were baptized in the Spirit wouldn't go to a country based on their tongue that they learned or they were speaking. They would go to the country that they had come from. There were so many immigrants in the early Pentecostal movement who, when they were baptized in the Spirit, would return home, sometimes return home from the country they had fled from. I fled from the Middle East, said Andrew Urshan, but I'm going to return back to the Middle East and I'm going to tell people about Jesus. I fled from Russia, said when the leader of Russian Pentecostalism. When he was baptized in the Spirit, he went right back to Russia. He started a movement in Odessa. He gave his life to the gospel there. But they weren't baptized in the Spirit just to speak in tongues. They were baptized in the Spirit to speak in their own language. And that's what they did with effectiveness. The Spirit gives us the words. The gift of the Spirit fills our worship, produces our wonders, provides our words. But the gift of the Spirit also empowers our witness. Empowers our witness. Peter is able to stand up and say to the crowd, it's not just that tongues represent the gift of the Spirit, but the gift of the Spirit represents that Jesus has made it to the right hand of God the Father. How many realize that the crowd, the last time they had heard about Jesus was when he was crucified? And now they have someone standing before them and saying, the man that was crucified in your presence, that some of you cheered on his death, 
has now been made Lord and God. In fact, let's go to the passage right here. I'm just going to throw this up here really quick. For the sake of time, I'm going to read this very quickly. But Peter makes it clear in this story. He makes it clear, let everyone know for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. How would you feel if you found out the kid you had bullied all throughout school had now become the sheriff of your town? Right? You just know you're getting a ticket. How does the crowd feel when Peter says to them, the man you crucified has now been made Lord and Messiah? The crowd asked the question, what should we do? And Peter's response, I need you to repent. Repent of your sins. Repent of your initial rejection of Jesus. And now turn around and be baptized in his name. And the same gift that God gave us, who were with Jesus for three years, that's the same gift God's going to give you, who just showed up today. This promise is for you, it's for your children, it's for those who are not even here. Here's our big so what for the message, and it's simply this. Christians are baptized in the Spirit so the world can be baptized in Jesus. Christians are baptized in the Spirit so the world can be baptized in Jesus. The reason we have the gift of the Spirit is not just so we can have a private relationship with God. Speaking in tongues is not meant to be some kind of secret decoder ring that only God and I have. It's not meant just for a private experience. It's meant for a public work. We are filled with the Spirit so that we can go to the world. The promise of the Spirit is not just for us, but the promise of the Spirit is through us. I know of a pastor who many, many years ago was asked to visit a church, a family that was in need. There was a mother who had cancer. She had a three-year-old. She had a five-year-old. She was dying of cancer. Her husband had tried to help, but the pressure of taking care of two small children and a sick wife had become too much for him, and he'd simply abandoned the family. Now this mother was alone with these two children, her five-year-old trying to do everything he could. The pastor was asked to please come and visit this family. So he showed up one morning, and he said, as I went to the door and knocked on the door, this five-year-old came to the door. The mom was too sick to get up. The five-year-old comes to the door. He looks one, look, takes one look at me and simply asks this question, sir, are you the man from God? Our neighbor told us when the man from God gets here, everything's going to change. Are you the man from God? Pastor said, I looked at the kid. I didn't have the heart to give him my title. I didn't have the heart to give him my name. I didn't have the heart to tell him I'm from this particular church in your town. All I could do is look at him and I said, son, I'm the man from God. 
said, we walked in, and I'm praying the whole time, God, you're going to have to do something right now because there is a family in need, and there is a five-year-old who believes everything's going to change. He said, I went to that mom. I laid hands on her. I commanded her to be healed in the name of Jesus. To his surprise, she got out of bed. She felt well. Within a few minutes, she was in the kitchen making food for her kids. And he said, for the next 15 years, while I was at that church, they attended my church. And I never forgot again the words of that five-year-old, are you the man from God? Church, there is a world out there that is asking this question, are we the people from God? They need to know that there is a man from God that can come into their space and that can make all the difference. They need to know there is a woman from God who will have a word from the Lord and it's going to change their life. They need to know not that there is just a people of God, but that there is a people from God that's going to go from their room to their world. We are called to be the people from God. The day of Pentecost is the birth of a spirit-filled church on a mission. We live in a world that needs to know if we're the people of God, if we're the people from God. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit. That's why we need to be filled with the Spirit. Because we can be believers in Jesus and we can stay in this room. But if we're going to be Spirit-filled followers of Jesus, that's going to take us to the world. So church, I want to ask you, are you ready to be the people from God? Our big so what? Christians are baptized in the Spirit so the world can be baptized in Jesus. Here's our big now what? Be baptized in the Spirit. Be baptized in the Spirit. If you have never had this experience of the Spirit, there's only three things you need to do. Number one, you need to receive Jesus. You need to receive Jesus. We are able to receive from Jesus because we've already given our lives to Jesus and the Spirit was already involved in that. If you are here this morning and you are not a Christian, you're someone who has not given your life to God, I'm going to invite you to do that this morning because this promise is also for you. All you're asked to do is repent and receive. Secondly, we simply ask for the Spirit but we ask for the Spirit for the sake of service. I think so many times Christians get hung up when they're praying for the Spirit of God to fill them on how they're going to respond now. Am I going to speak in tongues? What if I say the wrong thing? What if I accidentally start cussing? You know, you have all these things that run through your mind. Don't be worried about speaking in tongues. Be worried about how God's going to change your life from here on out. God is going to prepare you for service. Being filled with the Spirit isn't just a promise. It now becomes a responsibility because we are now the Spirit-filled people of God. Ask for the Spirit. Ask for service. I want to be used by you. I want to show others who you are. I want to be able to operate in signs and wonders. I need your Spirit. And then finally, expect. Expect to be filled. So many times when we pray, we get fixated on tongues. Don't look for tongues. Look for the Spirit and simply be ready to praise God in whatever language He gives you.
Simply expect and be ready. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for everyone here. I thank you for the heart of the people who want to follow after you, who want to be yours. And God, I'm asking right now this morning for three things. I'm asking for those in this room who don't know you as their Savior, who don't know you as their Lord, who haven't made a commitment to you, and I'm asking that they would this morning. I'm asking, secondly, for those in here who are believers. There are people who have already come to you, Jesus, but they don't know what it is to be filled by you. They haven't experienced the freedom that comes from the filling of the Spirit. God, I'm praying that they would experience that this morning. And I'm praying for all of us in this room, those of us who would say, I've had this experience. Maybe you speak in tongues every day. That's great. But God, I'm praying for these people that they would live to the full extent of the freedom your Spirit provides. God, I pray that we would all be living the Spirit-filled life the way you call. And this is what I pray for this morning. In Jesus' name. 